On Enmeshed, we discuss crimes and situations that may be disturbing for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Enmeshed, the show that reveals some of the most poisonous people come disguised as family. Enmeshed family members are fused together by unhealthy emotions instead of the strong bonds that signal a well-functioning family. Boundaries are blurred and unhealthy relationship patterns are formed. Hello and welcome to Enmeshed, the podcast that explores family relationships and crime. I'm Amanda. And I'm Pam. And today we're talking about two sisters who killed their mother in Canada in the early 2000s the bathtub murderers. This case is so interesting because here you have two girls, 15 and 16 years old at the time of the crime, who supposedly act out of desperation by killing their mom. But then they're the ones that essentially tell them themselves. There's a little bit of a Menendez brothers vibe here with the abuse allegations as well as the fact that they probably would have gotten away with it if they just kept their mouth shut. That's another case we will have to be sure to cover in the future. Absolutely. But for now, let's take ourselves to Mississauga, Ontario in the late 90s and early 2000s. Linda Anderson is raising her two daughters, 16-year-old Sandra and 15-year-old Beth, all by herself. Their father had left a few years prior. It's important to know at this point that because of Canadian law and the age of the girls when they killed their mother, all these names are pseudonyms to protect their identity. Of course, if the court or media had released their mother's name, it would have revealed who they were. That's right. And we're going to follow that same convention today by using these names. I watched a recent interview with one of the sisters that we'll talk about in a little while, and her face was blurred. So we feel it's best to continue to maintain that privacy as we talk about their case. So according to the girls, Linda was an alcoholic. She was frequently drunk and likely suffered from depression. Linda was neglectful of the girls as well, spending all her money on alcohol and depriving them of clothes, a clean house, and other basics. Like, they believed that dinner was for special occasions. According to the girls, Sandra and Beth. Yes, according to the murderers. But one of the things about this case is that it's possible there's been a lot of sensationalism around certain aspects while downplaying some pretty critical information. For instance, everyone wants to talk about how the girls were upset that their friends had things like swimming pools and new clothes, which throws them into this materialistic, damn near psychopathic light. But few sources delve into the physical abuse the girls allege they endured, or the failure of multiple adults in their lives to help them. And that kind of spin has an enormous impact on public opinion. A lot of people want to paint them as angry girls that wanted their mom to give them more things and they murdered her for it. Case closed. But it really isn't that easy. Here's where that listener discretion warning starts coming into play. If a recent interview with Sandra is to be believed, Linda's live-in boyfriend Doug was sexually abusing her. Which is just a terrible story. Sandra had gone to her priest to tell him what was happening, and he advised this child to confront Doug and tell him that if he didn't stop abusing her, she would tell Linda. 
She followed his advice, and Doug told her to go right ahead and tell. And the priest didn't report it. A 12-year-old is being molested at home, and he doesn't report it. In another instance of reaching out for adult help, Sandra had contacted the Children's Aid Society to report the conditions in their home. But as an investigation was launched, she says she chickened out. She could not reveal the full state of deprivation and wouldn't talk about the violence at all. Including Linda driving drunk multiple times with the girls in the car. So she essentially torpedoed the investigation herself, and Cass did not follow up. She realized now that if she'd brought up the abuse, then everything could have been different. It's an awful position for a teen to be in. This should not be her responsibility. And even their grandparents didn't help. They knew about Linda's drinking problem, but just told the girls that if they excelled in school, it would all work out in the end which is just such an asinine response to addiction and neglect. But at the end of the day, while we can comprehend and try to understand how these girls came to kill their mom, there's no condoning such calculated actions. Right, and let's get into it. So by 2003, the girls were supposedly at the end of their rope. And on January 18th, Sandra and Beth decided to enact their plan to kill their mother. They'd been researching on the internet the best ways to do it. Can we just pause for a moment to talk about researching murder on the internet in 2002 to 2003? Like today, most people know that your computer will be seized, your searches examined, that kind of thing. But back then, not so much. CSI had only been on for a few years, and your average person was just generally less internet savvy. Right. Not to mention that these were teens, So they've got that untouchable view of themselves. So they could just be browsing the web for how-tos on killing their mom, totally nonchalant about it, confident that they will get away scot-free. And they're doing this together. I have not seen anything to suggest that one sister was the mastermind and the other was a reluctant participant. No, from everything I've read, they were in agreement that they drowned Linda. Classic enmeshment here. Like egging each other on, hyping each other up. That day, they start plying Linda with liquor, and as she starts to get drunk, they mix in six Tylenol 3 pills. Tylenol 3 is no joke. This is the Tylenol with codeine in it. It's my understanding that you're not supposed to take more than two every four hours or so. Definitely not six at once with alcohol. The girls were betting on that. They wanted to slow Linda's heart rate, make her pliable, and make her pass out once she was in the bathtub. So they drew her a bath, helped her into it, which was difficult because of the vodka and pills, and then they even gave her a massage to help her relax. They then put on gloves and forced Linda's head under the water, setting a timer for four minutes. Once the girls were sure she was dead, they went to dinner with friends to establish an alibi. Are you planning an event with audio and visual needs but are not sure where to start? Waves Entertainment can help. Waves Entertainment is your premier full-service management company with high-quality custom solutions for any size event. Whether you are planning a large festival or concert, a corporate meeting or wedding, Waves Entertainment will power your event to excellence. 
Our team of industry professionals work closely with your vision to ensure your audience hears every word, sees every detail, and remembers the experience. Our goal is to ensure your event is customized to fit your needs and provide professional-grade equipment to amplify your message. From live stage production and talent booking to vendor coordination, event staffing, and more, Waves Entertainment is your one-stop shop for the perfect event. Visit our website, wavesentertainment.com, or give us a call at 704-662-2435. That's 704-662-2435. Waves Entertainment, powering your event to excellence. So let's recap for a second here before moving on. They drugged her manipulated her into the tub, took the trouble to put on gloves, and then drown her with a timer going before leaving her in the tub so they could go be seen in public. You've got it right. They went back home after the dinner and called 911 as though they were just now discovering their mother dead, even crying on the phone and saying CPR wasn't doing anything. Well, CPR wasn't doing anything. Linda had been dead for hours. The police had no reason to suspect foul play. They named it an accidental drowning and moved on. Finding the drugs and alcohol in her system was not a red flag, and the girls went unsuspected for almost a year. They had to have been feeling really clever that they'd pulled off this murder that allowed them to receive her life insurance policy, and no one was the wiser. And if they had just kept their mouths shut, they most likely never would have been caught. And that's where their teenage confidence trips them up. They'd been talking to friends about their plot since before it even happened, with one friend encouraging them to wear the gloves when they did it. According to one source, that dinner they went to, it was a celebration dinner, and one sister was really chatty while the other was quietly picking at her meal. We don't know which one is which in this case. It's amazing that only one person they told came forward. I have to wonder why. In late 2003, a young man who is known as SW in court documents tells police that he'd been talking to one of the girls at a party and she had told him everything. He continued talking with her online about her involvement and her mother's drowning. That will be important to the case later. And the police gave him a car that was wired to record audio. They decided to use SW to get these girls to confess. Over a few weeks, he gets each of the sisters in his car to talk about what happened. While it isn't clear from the court documents exactly who is who, one sister was forthcoming about her role, but didn't say anything about how the other sister participated. So when SW asked the other sister about it, he acted surprised when she started detailing how she was the one to mix the drugs into Linda's vodka. He was trying to give her an out, like... Oh, your sister must have done everything, right? And the second sister said, No, I was right there in it. She points out that physically speaking, because of space in the bathroom, she had to stand behind whichever sister was the one to actually hold Linda's head under the water for four minutes. But she makes herself sound like a pretty willing participant. These taped admissions opened up the floodgates. The police arrested the girls in January of 2004 and were able to use dozens of online communications with multiple friends 
as well as their search history against them and their trials. They were sentenced to the maximum possible punishment at the time, which was 10 years since they were minors, and they were sent to separate facilities with no contact with one another. I'm curious if they were only dangerous together. There are other cases similar to this involving siblings committing crimes together. That alone, they most likely would never commit. Perhaps it was just this extraordinary circumstance, yet otherwise they were totally normal women. We are not sure of the sisters' relationship today either. The judge, Justice Duncan, wrote in his decision, quote, They suffered a level of poverty that was not in keeping with their mom's relatively good income. The home atmosphere was depressing and degrading. However, he goes on to say, quote, They saw her as a passed-out drunk, not an exhausted mother trying to cope and taking comfort in alcohol, end quote. Beth, the younger sister, hasn't given any interviews that I'm aware of, but she was able to be released early into a halfway house in order to pursue her education. She reportedly finished law school. Sandra has also graduated from university now and works as a scientist. In a 2020 interview, she said that as a teenager, she worried she may be a serial killer because she'd also fantasized about killing Doug, the abusive boyfriend. With therapy and her time in prison, she doesn't believe that anymore and hopes not to define her life by the single worst thing she's ever done. One thing she said from the interview that jumped out to me was, quote, I don't know how to feel love without grief. I'm so viscerally ashamed of what I've done, end quote. She evidently had plans to take her life insurance payout once she turned 18, buy a gun, go to Amsterdam, and kill herself. But prison came first. What do you think, Amanda? Do you think this is a woman full of remorse for what she did? Or do you think that she's upset she was caught? I can see remorse. If you are openly talking about it, obviously they were trying to validate and process the violent act. Both of these women have lived very quiet, anonymous lives in their adulthood. They have not participated in any media retellings of their crimes, which include a 2009 book by B.O.B. Mitchell called The Class Project, a 2010 episode of Deadly Women, and a 2014 movie called Perfect Sisters that Sandra says she's grateful is a terribly made movie, so at least people won't talk about it. Well, it wasn't the worst movie ever, but I'm no critic. I'd like to mention that if you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, please visit thehotline.org or call 800-799-SAFE. That's 800-799-7233. Also, if you or someone you know is struggling with alcohol abuse or dependency, you can turn to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism for assistance. Thank you for listening. All of our sources are in today's show notes, as well as those important resources. You can find us at enmeshed underscore true crime podcast on Instagram or enmeshed true crime podcast on Facebook and let us know what you think. You can also get a behind the scenes look at the show and chat with us about any of the cases you've heard here or share case suggestions. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to keep up with Enmeshed, and join us every Monday for fresh takes on stale relationships.
Enmeshed is an oh no production. Oh no! Mm-hmm.